y'all, it's Catherine. Um, after the June 30th Patriot Prayer Rally in Portland, I've got anti-fascism on the mind. And I want to just give a, a big shout out to all the anti-fascists in Portland who held down the fort. Very solid, y'all. Thank you for your work. There is another rally happening on August 4th. And if you've been on the sidelines or you're within driving distance, I encourage you to go. Um, if you want to help but you can't show up in the streets, there are a lot of other ways to show solidarity and support. Uh, you can get creative with it, maybe write an op-ed or do a banner drop. You can do that from anywhere. So that would be helpful. It really does make a difference. You could also contact the organizers and see if they have any needs you can assist with. You can find the event with more information on the Friendly Anarchism Facebook page. It's the August 4th event. And this week I've decided to lightly re-edit and re-air one of my favorite episodes when I spoke with the IWW organizer Greg Williams last summer 2017. There are different complementary methods of anti-fascist organizing that we can be looking at in addition to current practices. It was a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And if you have any questions or concerns about Antifa or about anti-fascism, I'm happy to help answer them. You can email me at friendlyanarchism at riseup.net. That's R-I-S-E-U-P dot net. And you could also go to the website that I have, which is friendlyanarchism.org, and select anti-fascism under the resources tab. I've put together a lot of stuff there so you can educate yourself more on anti-fascism and Antifa. So for all of the anti-fascists that are getting ready for the fourth, you hang in there. You got this. And I'm sending you all my love. All right, here we go. Hello, this is Catherine. Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. I have here with me Greg Williams. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of what you do and what you're about? Uh, yeah. So, um, hi. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm the organizing coordinator for the Raleigh-Durham branch of the Industrial Workers of the World, and I also work with the local prison abolitionist org uh, Inside Outside Alliance. That is awesome. And you also do some above-ground anti-fascism organizing? Uh, yeah. So part of my work with the Industrial Workers of the World, I'm part of uh, the General Defense Committee, which is basically the community organizing wing of our union, which does a lot of different sorts um, of anti-racist and anti-authoritarian work, from uh, cop watch programs to rapid response ICE. But part of that, especially in our current political moment, is also mass mobilizations against the far right. And what does that look like? What kind of what does it look like to be an above ground anti fascist organizer and in sort of a day to day organizing life? Yeah, so it's 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 very much an attempt to find a third way between the sort of two predominant um, modes of anti-fascist organizing that we currently have. So on the one hand, you'll have sort of more sorts of liberal organizing that will attempt to bring large numbers of people in to the work, but won't really engage in very many sort of militant tactics. On the other hand, you'll also have some sort of more insurrectionary sorts um, of praxis that will be confrontational but won't be mass-oriented. The goal of uh, mass anti-fascism or community self-defense is essentially to introduce militant forms of praxis to the sort of organ to sort of mass-based organizing. Um, so it involves working with clergy and religious groups um, and or people and or student organizations and or sort of people at large. Uh, many of whom don't necessarily come from a sort of activist background in order to try to to build militant confrontation with fascism, but on a mass basis. Mm -hmm. So do you pull mostly from people further on the liberal side? Do you also work with people on the more insurrectionary militant side? Or how have you found to be most effective to gather that mass mobilization? Both, but given that there are certainly people in in both camps who are dissatisfied with the current sort of range of options. Um, 
But I think some of the most successful work that we do is actually drawing from people who haven't really been convinced by either camp and are actually new to anti-fascist work Hmm. um, itself. So, for example, one of our current projects um, and the GDC is to try to build a local organizing committee in Alamance County, North Carolina, which is it's a rural county um, in sort of in between Greensboro, Charlotte, and Raleigh-Durham. And unlike these sort of more urban centers that have sort of a very big activist scene, um, there aren't many organizations, there aren't many uh, liberal or insurrectionary people. And so most of the success that we've seen has been in just people who woke up one morning and realized that um, there were groups in their community that were tied to Identity Europa or Blood and Honor or any of these other like openly neo-Nazi groups and decided that, that was not something that they wanted to tolerate um, and started working with us. So you pull from rural areas. Um, as well as urban, yeah. As well um, as urban. So it's, it's definitely in North in North Carolina, at least, a key mark of any kind of um, successful organizing is going to be building alliances between urban and rural communities because, yeah, the current political state of affairs very much thrives on the, on the division between these communities. I've found that being an anarchist specifically is very helpful in this regard because people are so um, disaffected and dissatisfied with our party system. So if you come to the table not as a Democrat or as a Republican, you can find the sort of middle ground where you agree with different people on different aspects of our political climate. Yeah, I definitely think that that's the case. Um, I also think that it's there's there's a certain type of especially in more liberal circles that anarchists have a certain level of distance from there's a certain contempt for rural communities that just is obviously not helpful yeah. um and that that the um we've got actually a lot of people in our organization who are from who will be some of the only leftists in their family who will say, oh yeah, it was either joining the IWW or joining the neo-Confederates. And I joined the IWW because it turned out that they hated liberals as much as we did. <laughs> um, and for similar reasons, you know, right. that, that they are, you know, hierarchical in their politics, um, often leading towards a particular, shall we say, David Brooks-ish kind mm-hmm. of rhetoric, mm-hmm. um, very much catering to um, a politics that is urban, white, wealthy, and here in the South, um, very much associated with the North. Oh, um, yeah. And which is, which, which there's a certain resentment against that, that is, that is channeled, that is captured by the far right, that the left can very easily capture if it would just bother to give a damn about that. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it seems like, the only people that really like liberals right now are other liberals. Pretty much. Um, it's, I think that, I think that we're definitely in a political moment where, as you said, the sort of failures of, um, sort of the mainstream, uh, both mainstream liberalism and mainstream conservatism are relatively, relatively open. And we are starting to see people, um, looking for new and different options. Um, and um, I think that part of the um, advantage of being both militant and above ground, um, because being above ground means that people can actually find you and talk to you, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to sorts of more covert forms of insurrectionary activism, um, is that you can actually engage with people um, who are fed up with the existing options and present a concrete alternative. Do you come to the table openly as an anarchist? Uh, yes, I do. Um, that said, it, I should stress immediately that all of the organizations that I work with, um, and also all of the best um, organizations that we often find ourselves aligned with, um, so for example, one org that I'm not a member of, but um, work very closely with and that I would just want to give a shout out um, on your program, um, is called Redneck Revolt. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, which we, we, we've got a, they're very good friends of ours. And like the IWW, um, all of these organizations are non-sectarian. So there are lots of organizations in Redneck Revolt. There are lots of, of, of anarchists. Sorry, there are lots of anarchists in Redneck Revolt. There are lots of anarchists in the IWW. There are lots of anarchists in the GDC. None of these are anarchist organizations per se. And there are plenty of people who are not anarchists um, who are part of them. Although they definitely all have an anti-authoritarian and horizontal sort of practice. Mm -hmm. And I did say something. I was not very nice about liberals, but I've also I have been working with liberals and reaching out to liberals. And there is a surprising amount of interest in anarchism, even within what would be considered very liberal spaces, you know, talking to um, graduate students and people, especially graduate, like graduate students or students and people in faith communities seem to be open to the idea once you get over the shock of the word, you know, talking about the actual issues involved, there's a lot of interest, which is very exciting. Um, So... And I think that this again is is one of the advantages of kind of, of of presenting a specifically organizational approach is that a lot of times people who are operating in these circles are doing are operating within a set of options that have been presented to them based on the organizations that are willing to work with them. Um, so to give a very concrete example um, of one anti-fascist action that we did recently here in North Carolina that was very successful. Um, so um, June 10th was the National Day of Action that was held by um, Act for America. Mm-hmm. Um, their their quote-unquote march against Sharia, Islamophobic, slanderous. I, we don't need to talk about how, how much all that's bullshit. I take it that you and your listeners all know that that's bull- <laughs> bullshit. Um, and um, we worked with a number of local Muslim organizations that um, – individual organizers within those groups um, wanted to do a more confrontational thing and were used to being told no and Mm -hmm. were used to being told, uh, well, we don't have the resources for that or now isn't the time or yada, yada, yada. And so we were in a room and we were like, oh, yeah, I mean, we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And because a lot of these organizations are often like very small very isolated and dependent upon networks of resources that are committed to much more mainstream political projects. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we ended up having, um, saying like, yeah, okay, we can take the street, we can do a noise demo, we can try to deplatform these people. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did all three of of those things, and we outnumbered them, we outnumbered Act for America 276 to 50, yeah. um, and we shut them down with a massive noise demo that also held the streets against the Raleigh cops. Like, um, And most of the people at that demonstration had never done anything like that before, mostly wow. because nobody had told them that it was possible. Mm-hmm. There's been a rhetoric for a long time that you, if you're not 100% completely in this sort of pacifist, nonviolent mode, then you're going to screw up everything for everybody. So... Um, <sighs> Exactly. And similarly, there's the narrative that the only people who engage in more confrontational tactics um, are uh, people of relative privilege. You know, you've got the sort of stereotype of the black bloc that is made up of testosterone fueled white men Hmm. um, that, again, isn't necessarily helped by um, anonymity as a constant practice. Right. Right. Like there are. There are often good reasons to stay anonymous, and obviously our first priority is to keep ourselves and one another safe. Mm -hmm. Um, But if people can't find you and they can't organize with you, you basically allow um, the right or the center um, to narrate who you are and what you're about instead of being able to actually narrate yourself to these communities. And narratives are really important. People respond really well to stories um yeah. respond really well and to like who respond are you really well to personal relationships yeah and having again, a is, yeah yeah and having having a face i've noticed i don't look necessarily what people think of when you think of an anarchist so when i say oh yeah when i you know just open and friendly about it like oh yeah i'm an anarchist it takes us people are always like what, what, what? but then they get over it you know and then it's mm-hmm. um then the the page is open to talk about what that means and how can we help each other and um what 
you know, people are looking around saying, look, nonviolence sort of in the way that we've been doing it has gotten some gains. But overall, it seems like things have been getting worse and we need to be doing something different. What do we do? And it's like, well, you know, there are people that have been doing this kind of thing and we can learn from them and that, you know, and if we can get past the sort of labels and the sort of like fear of the bank robber um, stereotypes and that kind of thing. And also if we recognize that nonviolence has always had a wide range of meanings. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, like we, like, 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 um, we, I want to give a shout out, um, to the fact that, um, I mean, obviously, um, a couple on Saturday, we saw some amazing and really courageous, uh, mobilizations in Charlotte, but we also saw some amazing mobilizations, um, in New Haven, Connecticut, um, which included, um, like people throwing, um, throwing water balloons filled with like paint and dye, um, mm-hmm. at Proud Boys <laughs> and, um, you know, damaging their clothes to the point where they, where they went away. And people were saying, including, I was very sad to see some people, um, at the Catholic worker in New Haven, where I actually used to live at one point, um, saying, oh no, this is violent. This is, mm. uh, this doesn't represent a pacifist approach. And it's like, well, okay, a, actually, the Catholic worker tradition has a long history of property destruction. <laughs> and B, if damn it, if throwing paint on somebody's clothes manages to shut down a fascist rally, how is that in some way violent? So I think part of it, part of it is to get out of the mindset of nonviolence. Part of it is also just to think nonviolence in broader and more creative terms, mm-hmm. which at its best, um, it's always included. And it's interesting, you add anarchists to something and people will just immediately assume violence when it makes zero sense. For instance, uh, Rose City and Tifa just did an action where they got a major West Coast fascist organizer, Joey Gibson, um, fired through just knowing who he was, having people show up to his workplace explaining who he was. He'd been very open about being a horrible, horrible white supremacist piece of shit. And having people call in, in mass numbers, having a phone jam, this is just a very, very basic, normal, uh, nonviolent, within the realm of academic, nonviolent protest. It's, you know, getting somebody fired, that's totally, in zero way is that violent. But you still saw comments about it, about how intensely violent it was. It's like, that makes zero sense. This has something to do with the narrative it was just a very interesting thing to see. It's like just because Antifa did it meant necessarily there was something very scary and violent about it. Yeah, and I think that this partially has to do... I mean, of course, this is a really, you know, basic point that probably doesn't even need to be said, except that it constantly needs to be said, right, is that the language of violence is primarily applied... um, not to the use of lethal force, um, but to threats to the system. So, for example, um, one of and there's a I mentioned at the begin at the beginning of this interview um, that I also work with a number of abolitionist organizations, mm-hmm. and I see anti-fascism and abolitionism as going very closely together mm-hmm. um, in combating systematic racism um, in non-state actors as well as from the state, and. Um, similarly, um, people who advocate a particular type of nonviolence, particularly people who, who will use the language of quote unquote revolutionary nonviolence and will be trying to, uh, wed nonviolence to a particular type of mass organizing, which is a good thing. And that's probably the best that the nonviolent political tradition in this country has to offer, um, will consistently point to the labor movement and will consistently point to things like strikes and boycotts as paradigmatic, forceful, nonviolent mass actions that can, um, that can bring pressure. And yet, um, on September 9th last year, we saw the nation's largest ever in history, um, national prison strike, um, with prisoners, um, in 22 states, Mm -hmm. um, going on strike, stopping work, um, and, this then gets portrayed similarly in those lines of, oh, people who supported the strike, you know, they're supporting prison riots, they're supporting criminality, etc. So something like a strike 
when it's done by prisoners is portrayed as violent in the same way as, like, you're talking about um, something like a call-in um, gets portrayed as violent um, when it's done by Antifa. Right. Um, because um, the, the, the open secret is that the language of violence um, is really applied to um, going outside of sort of the rules of the game Mm-hmm. Um, of state-centered politics, um, particularly in terms of who can be a political agent. Right. Um, and when people act who aren't supposed to be political agents um, or who portray um, the system that we are living under as something other than what it wants to be portrayed as, that's when you get the language of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. Which is why it's all the more important... Um, again, that we build actual on-the-ground relationships in local communities in order to explain this ourselves, mm-hmm. um, that we don't, um, so that we don't um, get ourselves explained into um, complete sort of political marginalization, which, again, comes back to the importance of being both militant and above-ground and organizational and mass-oriented in our approach mm-hmm. um, to work. I'm seeing that from anarchists all over. Crime Think just did a really great piece about Hamburg, where he was. They were talking about how important it was to have these liberated spaces, and then also how important it was that Hamburg, as an entire city, together with the anti-fascistas, uh, with just community members of all types, all came together in this mass mobilization against the uh, um, riot police that were brought in from all over Europe. So. I think there's a real there's a real push from the far left to engage with communities as a whole. So there there is um although I will say it's it's it is rather ironic that that's coming from crime think now given um that that has historically been one of the biggest voices against this sort of approach. Well, that's exactly um, that's what I mean on is that the anarchist the... left but yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I think I think part of it also means though that um, we are in a period of enormous promise where sort of anarchists are starting to realize that they need to do this. But it's also a period of real peril because we need the actual organizational techniques and practices um, to do this type of mass engagement, which many spa- which in many spaces we've allowed that that type of organizational praxis to become anemic, mm. um, which is why. Um, organizing spaces, space anarchist-oriented spaces that have cultivated organizing as a skill and practice, whether that's um, Redneck Revolt, GDC, IWW, or whatever, um, or um, anarchist organizations of a more platformist approach like, say, Black Rose or First of May Anarchist Alliance mm-hmm. are going to be really important um, to building anarchist uh, mobilizations in the near future. I think also reaching out to part of it would be reaching out to existing community organizations that are now looking around and interested in more anti-fascist type people at the table because it is in many ways just different. You know, there are just real major differences between anti-fascist organizing and sort of the more electoral organizing people are more used to. Mm-hmm. In Although, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, and and I think I think though that what we can what we can partially do is we can draw on um, other places where non-state centric organizing has already been introduced to a certain extent. Um, so um, things like um, uh, squatters' movements combating gentrification um, or cop watch programs. Uh, combating police brutality or the popularization of sort of rapid responses to ICE and sort of showing like, okay, these are things that sort of stretched you already Mm -hmm. and moved you beyond electoral politics. Now, what if instead of treating fascism like this complete non sequitur, what if we treated it as just another part of the system that we're trying to organize against? What Mm -hmm. if we took this same approach that you've seen a little bit of um, to um, crooked landlords and brutal cops and polluting corporations. And what if we applied that same approach to fascists as well? 
Hmm. And so we can we can take this sort of far out, completely alien to many people concept of anti-fascism, and we can bring it just that much closer to um, the imaginations of what people in at least the best um, of certain types of organizing spaces that haven't been completely monopolized by the Democratic Party or electoral politics right. um, can already be familiar with. So you mentioned it a couple times. Do you want to talk about cops? <laughs> <laughs> Do I want to? Mm, we probably should. <laughs> we, probably, we probably should. Um, it seems like people still think that they are their friends. A lot of people. Yeah, and yeah, um, I think that and those by people, people I mean, in Charlottesville this weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, privileged, privileged people, you know. Yeah, no, I think, I think that, yeah, this is a double-edged sword, right? Because um, we need to, um, we need to address on the one hand this kind of implicit trust of police and this readiness to be protected by police. Mm -hmm. um, so something, one of the main ways that we've worked with Redneck Revolt um, in organizing in Raleigh and Durham is precisely like on the lines of like saying, no, 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 the police aren't going to protect us. We need to get quite serious about organized approaches to protecting ourselves. Yeah. Um, and which has actually paradoxically really helped people who know full well that the cops aren't going to protect them, um, come in and do more militant um, actions. Hmm. Um, we saw that on June 10th, where people became a lot more militant and a lot more confrontational because they knew that there were that there were redneck revolt folks in the crowd. Hmm. Um, and um, the um, but at the same time, and this is again that kind of we need to avoid the sort of the ambivalence towards militancy of, of the liberals and we need to avoid the kind of non-mass oriented um sort of sense of of some not all insurrectionary anarchists yeah. um we also need to be strategic about our confrontations with the cops um and to understand that um there is a, there that the sort of Similar to, say, you know, the use of black bar tactics, right? That there are going to be situations in which that's the right tactic and the right um, move to make. And then there are also going to be situations in which that's just going to um, – in which we would be better served by other tactics. Similarly, there are going to be circumstances in which we want to confront the cops – we need to understand that while the cops aren't going to protect us, aren't going to be our friends, that we also need to be strategic about how we confront them, especially when we're confronting the far right as well. And given yeah. um, some of the stuff that we've seen um, here on the East Coast, looking at it from afar, from Portland, of, yeah. in many cases, footage of police talk about cops and Klan, you know, police and neo-Nazis literally, quote-unquote, arresting people together. Yep. yep, I was there. To understand, that, like, that, you know, if we're in a situation where we're up against the loyal white knights and or the traditionalist workers' party and or the local cops, that going after all of those people at once and confronting all of those people at once isn't going to always be the most strategic thing. Um especially given that they are working together and that we may sometimes want to be much more specific about our targets, not because we don't hate cops, not because we're not abolitionists, um, but because we're trying to think um, more situationally about our tactics. I think this comes back down to the narratives too, because if you can get the narrative on your side and get the story on your side, then you can do a lot more. You know, you can get a lot more community on board, at least not standing in your way, and it helps keep cops from getting away with as much as they get away with. Uh, exactly. So. And it also helps to empower, again, if, if the goal is to draw people in who have, ne who have maybe have never, like, disobeyed an order from a cop before, um, you know, um, it doing this in a strategic way, and again, getting that showing... Um, showing the situation sometimes rather than just simply moving towards sort of enacting a confrontation can also be pedagogical as well. Mm -hmm. So for example, 
um, when we um, held a counter demonstration against the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan in Pelham and Danville um, on December 3rd when they said that they were going to have a quote-unquote victory parade for Donald Trump, um, we um, went up to Danville um, to the place where they had finally sort of announced that they were going to have their rally. We took the streets ahead of them, and they ended up not being able to take the streets. Now, the cops um, tried to order us out of the street, tried to order the people who were masked to unmask, and we didn't go directly after them. We basically ignored them. And because this was Danville, and because this was um, a small-town police department that had not been expecting anything because all the action was supposed to be in Pelham, and because there were hundreds of us, they were completely overwhelmed mm-hmm. and just followed us with one police car sort of vainly trumpeting, <laughs> you've got to get out of the road, you've got to get out of the road. And then suddenly all these people, again, many of whom hadn't even been to a demonstration before, much less an unpermitted march, much less an unpermitted march where we were specifically defying a legal order to disperse, you know, who had been sort of standing on the sidewalks or whatever, started coming into the streets and being like, oh, shit, we can do this. That's very awesome. Um, And, you know, we literally had, like, local neighborhood kids, like, streaming into the streets and starting to march with us. That wouldn't have been possible if we had kind of stuck to the sort of standard formulaic, Mm -hmm. you must always stop for the cops and you must always block them in their path and you must always sort of uh, turn towards them and start chanting cops and quack. Like, we just... We made them irrelevant, basically. Yeah, mm -hmm. making the irrelevance is a really interesting approach that I've seen David Graeber talks about as the other type of revolution is creating, is just making the current system irrelevant. So that seems like it possibly comes all the way down to a much smaller scale than just irrelevancy of the system as a whole, possibly, as a tactic. No, exactly, um, and I think that I think that this is also um, some. This this comes back to sort of the need for um, community self defense. Um, sometimes, as in the case of Redneck Revolt, uh, um, with armed self defense, where um, we can make the cops irrelevant, um, partially by by taking away their only claim to be able to be there. You know. Um, if if we turn the the chant "Who keeps us safe? We keep us safe" into real practice, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we actually have real effective um, power, then not only can we sort of make the sort of successful critique of the cops, oh look, they're claiming to keep us safe, but in reality, they're clearly protecting the fascists, which they are, and which is true. Yeah, but we can also say, hey. And that task of protection that they claim to be doing, we're actually a lot better at that. Um, you know, um, uh, that that we that that can be a significant moment in sort of breaking hmm. the hegemony that police have hmm. um, over over a crowd. That's very interesting. I've definitely seen situations developing where masked black bloc are obviously having a presence that's making people feel safer and then those actions go really well. Yes. And I think that the key thing to that, I mean, obviously the purpose of one of the main purposes of a black bloc is to again protect anonymity and protect um a certain and 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 particularly protect against state surveillance and surveillance by the by the right. I think at least in situations that where I have observed that to happen, um, there have still been some significant underlying relationships. Um, and many of the same people um, who are doing the black block will also be, you know, and this is, this just goes back to what you were saying about sort of de-stereotyping in terms of what anarchists are, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that the people in the black block are also the people who will be part of a community meal program. Um, oh, I see. Or putting out Narcan or also engaged in, and this again, I think is another place um, where abolitionism and anti-fascism go very closely together because if the same um, people um, are also engaged because, because 
prison because prison work is one of the main places where we build direct um, and often very long term relationships with people who are suffering the brunt of state repression the most. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, that in many cases um, that that can I think help to create a sense of familiarity such that the black bloc are not this sort of alien spectacular force right but like you may not know who the individual people are you may not want to know who the individual people are or who's doing what but it's 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 not other you know right it's it goes back to this notion that our goal has got to be regardless of the particular tactics to organize the whole community and in cases where that's not true um those are cases where um where black block tactics um, may not be the best approach. Um, and so similar to sort of waging confrontations with the cops, um, we need to sort of start also thinking traditional sort of anarchist tactics like black block in this type of situational and contextual way that is geared towards broad-based organizing and is geared towards relationship building even as it's a tactic that keeps us safe by keeping us anonymous. So you consider the community service type anarchism be done in Black Bloc as well to keep pe- to get people used to being around masked? Uh... Oh, sometimes. Um, but sometimes also, even, even if it's, um, even just, you know, under being done under the under the under, under an anarchist label that can often be enough mm, mm. um you know um and or you know like creating sorts of communal spaces in which like people are just sort of having open conversations about these sorts of tactics um and thing and things like that um i def i i don't i don't think that you need the actual the actual mask in order to in order to signal that Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just to give a very, very concrete example, um, I was in, um, Graham, North Carolina, um, on May 20th with, um, several of our folks, um, who, um, were, um, are organizing locally there, um, in Alamance County and, um, a number of people who came out to support the effort, um, were actually ex-prisoners um, who I and several other people work with um, through Inside Outside Alliance and other abolitionist organizations. Um, and um, we had a mixed crowd, some masked, some not. And um, things didn't go as planned. Several of us got arrested, including me. I get out, um, and it turns out that one of the individuals, this is just one of my sort of proudest organizing moments ever. <laughs> it turns out that one of the Inside Outside Alliance folks, one of these people who was coming to the demonstration on an ankle monitor because he was just out of jail, had not only gotten me a bondsman, but had hustled the bondsman down from charging 15% to charging 10%. Um, <laughs> And then insisted on signing my bond paperwork. Mm, that's nice. That's it's 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 a touching story, but it's also like that's the type of solidarity that people will show if there's that type of sort of prior relationship building. Mm-hmm. And just for me, right? Like it was there, you know. Here, so it's like here's this sort of um, anarchist oriented anti fascist crowd. Some of them masked. Some of us with hard banners, um, some of us um, definitely prepared to engage in more confrontational tactics with the cops, you know, and here are these folks who are in many cases like some of them, like some of the people whom the system has hit hit hardest, Mm -hmm. exercising concrete solidarity because they knew a couple of us from this other context, right? Right. So that's where I think that this type of um, sort of commute, sort of community community building and community service oriented, um, anarchism, um, can, um, can help to render, um, this type of sort of more militant anti-fascism, again, more familiar, less of this sort of complete 
sort of alien sort of outside outside force and again promote the sense that we're actually all one community that's resisting together even though some of us are masked and some of us are not um even though some of us are engaged in these types of militant tactics that not everyone is necessarily going to engage in right do you do you work with the faith communities at all specifically because you're christian i do um i um yeah uh i work with the church that I currently go to probably the least um, <laughs> but, um, the um, but yeah no I um, uh, one of the things that I do um, is um, put together workshops on a range of topics mostly prison and white supremacy but also fascist um, and anti-fascist um, organizing work Um and um, go to different faith communities and sort of give these workshops in sort of groups of 10s and 20s um, and encourage people to become actively involved in the organizing work. I really, really enjoyed your article on free speech. It's one of the reasons I how I tracked you down because I mm. this was a very, very interesting article. Do you want to just talk about it a little bit? I'm going to post a link to it. Um, I have... Yeah, sure. Sure, like, yeah. Um... Yeah, no, this was, this was, um, this was, this is again, part, partially in an effort to situate, um, anti-fascism within broader sectors of community organizing and to treat it as, um, as another form of community organizing, right? Because in, in, um, particularly, um, you, you mentioned David Graeber earlier, but like drawing on somebody like David Graeber or Sylvia Federici or all these people you know, in many sort of different sectors, we're used to the idea of sort of forces of capitalism and racism and white supremacy sort of as forces of enclosure, right, Um, that are sort of taking away space um, and the need to forcibly sometimes open up space in which lots of different forms um, can take place, right? Um, uh, Whether that is um, housing squatting, um, whether that's um, an indigenous land defense blockade, um, whether that is some of the awesome environmental justice movement that's been being carried out by rural black communities in North Carolina in places like Mebane blocking highway development, um, often for decades on end. Um, you know, And yet when it comes to anti-fascism, right, and we suddenly make the argument about various types of speech – um, all of a sudden, we, we, we seem to think that we can just reverse that narrative. And all of a sudden, it's not that um, we're defending a space against enclosure, um, or, uh, but rather that we're trying to sort of take space from somebody else, which, which, which on a tactical level, right, we are, you know, no platform for Nazis um, means no space for them. But at least part of what I was trying to do in the article was to sort of show that, no, 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 we're not really trying to sort of shut down space for free speech. We're trying to defend space for free for free speech, um, which is under attack um, from sort of being um, uh, corporately um, taken over by something like Facebook or Twitter um, or by monopoly by being sort of monopolized, as in the case of sort of the two-party system, or in this case, um, which is um, under threat from violent, organized attempts um, to kill people who espouse ninety percent of the dist- of the different perspectives, right? Um, and so um, it's important to remember that it's not that. Um, and this is again very much contra a kind of liberal narrative about anti-fascism. It's not that we've got this sort of one monolithic totalitarian model of what you must think uh, and say and speak. No, that's what the Nazis have, right? Right. We are trying to defend open spaces um, in which um, people who have real differences can genuinely speak to and listen to one another, right? Um, And um, in Christian theological terms, in other words, we're trying precisely to defend spaces um, in which enemies and strangers can become friends, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is contained within the commandment um, uh, to love one's enemies. Um, Yeah. 
Which, yeah, the idea that hate speech shuts down free speech. That's the exact opposite narr- than the, from the narrative that the Nazis want to be in control of. So that's a very interesting take that I haven't heard before, and I really like it. Uh, yeah, well, unfortunately, it's, 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 I think it's partially fruit of um, us as anti-fascists, again, allowing our enemies to control the narrative. Yeah, right? we've really got like, to get on we, that. We, we, we hear liberals um, and the far right both saying, oh, you're against free speech. Um, and we either say, oh, yeah, we are. Or we say, um, oh, well, you know, free speech isn't that important. Uh, it's just a check on what the government can do, right? Like, um, which is partially, again, um, catering to this far right and or capitalist notion of free speech that's based in property rights that is associated with racism that we do want to reject. Um, but it's not paying attention to um, the, the sort of rich and varied sort of history of sort of democratic values that come from a much more populist um, and much more sort of working class um, hmm. angle, um, which, um, which again is very much tied up in the notion of sort of taking space back against various forms of enclosure. Mm-hmm. You, so I've had a hard time with love thine enemy. I'm a fairly new Christian. Mm. And that one, especially like as an anarchist, that one has been, I've been struggling with that a little bit. What I've come to recently is the idea is love thine enemy to keep them human. If you, if you let the Nazis in the far right claim superhuman power and dehumanize themselves in a way to make them like superhuman, superhuman, that allows them to claim power that they don't have. So loving thine enemy for me kind of means keeping in mind, loving their humanity in a way that keeps them not allowed to, not able to claim that kind of like God power. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, this is part of why um, I think it's really important that the synoptic tradition where the principal commandment um, is love your neighbor and or love your enemy um, needs to be um, very much paired with the Johannine tradition um, in which the principal commandment is love one another as I've loved you, right? You're supposed to love, um, you're supposed to love um, your enemy as God loves them, right? This is, this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount um, uh, finishes up all these commandments with Therefore, be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, it's it's the notion is that because God has become a human being in Jesus Christ, um, because God has done godly things humanly, um, and because in Jesus Christ we are given access to that, and we are empowered. Mm-hmm. By the Holy by the Holy Spirit that puts us in Jesus's position to also do divine things humanly hmm. um, that um, and 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 thereby to participate in the life of the Trinity that is redeeming creation and reconciling it to God's self that we are therefore supposed to love with God's own love which is which is the love that brings Israel out of slavery and into freedom in the Exodus, right? It's the love um, that stands um, with the oppressed, with the poor, with the marginalized. Mm. Um, in other words, any conception of enemy love that is somehow in competition with radical partisanship um, towards um, the exploited and the oppressed. Um, which certainly extends towards to to, to anti-fascism um, is um, comes to see the commandment to love your enemy um, as a kind of arbitrary rule laid down laid down um, by um, a, this sort of completely other um, god. It is it is it does not see it as the claim on our humanity um, by the god. Um, who God's self became human, 
right? So that we so that we might share in God's own life. Hmm. I've been thinking a lot about how did the far right, how did the right claim God the way that they have? Like, how have they so successfully co-opted Christ? When, when I read the Bible for the first time, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. I just recently, I just recently came to Christ just basically this last fall when I read the New Testament and just thought it was amazing and just thought it was hilarious and well-written, I guess, <laughs> and just uh, thought, thought, thought Jesus was really fun fun guy with a lot of really, really helpful, interesting things to say. And I'm reading this and it's like, I don't see the rhetoric of the right anywhere in here. How has it gotten like so warped and so co-opted? I don't, I just don't even, I just, I just don't even. Well, I mean, to see, to, to, to say a very, very Protestant thing, um, one thing that I think is very important to remember is that a lot of these people don't read the Bible carefully enough. Ah. Um, you know, I, this is, this is, as 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 trite as it is, sometimes things become trite for a reason. Um, the this is very much the fruit um, of a kind of cherry picked um, uh, form of uh, of sermon giving and Bible study. You know, this is this is this is this is this is what happens in a form of Christianity that is content to have everybody sort of take their five favorite verses out of the entire Bible mm. and then say that they mean. Um, whatever it is that you think that they mean. Um, so I do think that part of part of the effort um, to to renew Christianity in the face of American imperialism and in the face of the prison industrial complex and in the face of American Christo fascism, uh-huh. um, just like every other renewal movement, at least for the last five hundred years, um, whether that is the diggers in England. Um, or um, slave revolts in America, um, or uh, whatever else, um, it must include a, a, a careful and sustained and communal um, engagement with scriptures, with yeah. the scriptures, and, and actually reading the Bible. Yeah, when you um, actually read so, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... I was so entertained, I have to say, by the New Testament. Because when I read it, it's like, I really feel like Jesus was an anti-fascist just culturally. Like, coming as a as an anarchist first, when I picked it up, I'm reading it, and it's like, it spoke to me so, like, easily as relatable to anti-fascist culture. Uh, it was just Jesus running around as often as possible, embarrassing and shaming powerful people and talking back to authority and picking fights with cops and like all in this like really dry, dark sense of humor. Um, it was a very entertaining story. I, so. Well, this I think is the other thing, right? Is that like, we will only truly understand, um, the Bible, um, when we are living the way of life, um, to which it speaks, which is a way of life lived in resistance, um, to, um, capitalism, racism, and empire, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is, this is, I, I heard a, a, a truly amazing, um, sermon, um, actually from Rowan Williams, um, his sermon from Trinity Sunday this year, um, which is a great listen. There are lots of things that I disagree with about it, um, but what he's, he was preaching on Matthew 28, um, on the Great Commission, and, um, he, um, he says it, it reads, um, go baptize and teach, right? Um, and that we're very used to hearing these words, but that we actually don't get how strange they are. He says, because of course you would expect Jesus to say, go teach and baptize, right? Go to people, tell them what this sort of form of life is, and then initiate them into it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in reality, he says, go baptize and teach. Go initiate people into um, this um, way of resistance and community building um, and um, hospitality and solidarity. Um, and and then on the basis of that, mm-hmm. teach them, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, this is the thing, again, is that is that it is only as the Holy Spirit puts us into the place where Jesus stands mm-hmm. and teaches us um, to do the works of God 
um, in 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 the form of humanity that is his humanity. Mm-hmm. It's only then that we can begin to sort of put words to it and begin to actually mm-hmm. understand just what it is that we're actually getting into, right? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it. I can see now how the Bible could be, how the New Testament could be so confusing if you have no concept of living in direct service or like what right. that what that actually feels like or what that is or why to do that. One one thing I've been I was thinking about was the idea of discipleship versus the idea of being the oppressed. Um mm-hmm. and how I feel like the right has found this loophole where if you're the oppressed, then you can abdicate your responsibilities as a disciple and just wait for Jesus to wash your feet as opposed to being a privileged person who whose job it is is to give up that privilege and hit the streets with Jesus to actually help you know so if they so that I see that in everything that they do organizing trying to claim the oppressed role because then if they are the oppressed then they don't have to give up their privilege which is deeply ironic given that one of the principal things that Jesus ministry does right is to precisely accord the principal agency to the oppressed right um this is this is why um it this 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 is why jesus comes um as uh, a member of a nation of escaped slaves right and not as a roman you Mm -hmm. know this is why um you know it's people who are being um you know forced to go one mile that are told you know oh yeah go the extra mile and sort of muck up the Roman military system, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's precisely, it's precisely the people who are the oppressed, who are accorded the, who are accorded the greatest agency, as opposed to, again, yeah, you're right, this kind of, um, sort of victim complex that the far right has towards like, this kind of struggling white American, good, red-blooded, whatever, mm-hmm. um, that has just had everything taken away and like, oh, Clearly, uh, you know, uh, clearly, you know, we just need, you know, to have uh, have all of our marbles back, you know, (laughs) Uh, that's that's precisely not Jesus's message to the oppressed. Right. And then there if you're white in this country, you're like, that's not who I think the idea of being maybe not Jesus's favorite people is really hard for a lot of people. Like yeah, if well, you're not, is... if you're privileged and you're white and stuff, it's like, well, Jesus really was all about the refugees and the people who are being shot in the street all the time. And, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and this is, yeah, this is, this is, I think, part of what it means, um, for, um, for people who are descendants of, um, uh, of Paul's mission to the Gentiles, right? To learn what it means to be ingrafted into the tree of life, right? This notion that God has a mission to the oppressed, and then the people from the dominant culture are allowed to listen in on that, right? Mm. Um, but are but never become the central actors, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is why it's there's very little coincidence in the fact that people who hold to this sort of Christianity. Um, also tend to have a supersessionist attitude towards Judaism and think that, you know, God's promise has just passed over from Jews to Christians and are therefore very uncomfortable with the notion um, that they that they are worshipping somebody else's God, that they are being invited um, into, um, into somebody else's um, story about mm. uh, the way that acted for them. It's just centering, just we just continuously white privilege centering themselves in every aspect, including the religious experience of God. Yeah. Mm. Well, this has been fantastic. I've really, really enjoyed this talk. Um, yeah, me too. So uh, don't hang up. But okay. I think the we're going to end the episode right now. Okay. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. This has been Catherine Friendly Anarchism. For more information about Friendly Anarchism, you can visit my website, www.friendlyanarchism.org, where there are articles, resources on Quakers, radical Christianity, anarchism, and anti-fascism, a link to the store, and more. 
A big shout out to my patrons, your support means a lot. If you aren't a patron and you'd like to help keep the show going, you can go to www.patreon.com slash friendlyanarchism, and for just $1 a month, get access to patron-only content like unedited versions of the show and outtakes. Friendly Anarchism is part of the Critical Mediations Podcast Network, along with other great leftist podcasts like The Magnificast, Season of the Bitch, Revolutionary Left Radio, and others. I'm also part of Theology Corner, which is a project that explores different facets of Christianity. For more on radical Christianity, you can also check out the Friendly Fire Collective at www.friendlyfirecollective.wordpress.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a good review for me on iTunes. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening and see you next time. 